you would, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 21. We're actually going to start at the end of the chapter uh, this morning. And while you're turning there, I'll ask you this question. Uh, What were you hoping to find this morning? What were you hoping to hear or to experience? Um, Did you come to hear some good music? Um, Did you come to maybe learn uh, something? My hope is that um, beneath it all, you came because you wanted to hear from God. And uh, I hope that um, either through me or in spite of me, uh, that happens this morning, that you hear from him. Um, I'm going to begin by praying. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we do need to hear from you. Um, Who you are and what you've done defines everything about us. We must begin with you. We must know you. Um, You shape us. Um, You give us... um, you give us the life that matters. And so uh, I pray that we do hear from you this morning. I pray that you would remind us of the truth. And uh, I pray that when we leave here this morning, we, we come or we leave here resting in the hope that we have because of you and your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so we're, uh, we're going to start in uh, chapter 21, the end of the chapter, verses 37 and 38. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So um, in Luke chapter 9, there's this long journey that begins, goes all the way through 19, where Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. He has his face set towards Jerusalem, and in chapter 19, he gets to his destination. And we see there that um, he he mounts the colt of a donkey. It's an animal that symbolizes peace. It's a a picture of a king uh, coming to be coronated. Um, and so he rides the, the, the last half mile or so from, from the Mount of Olives down into the city of Jerusalem. And, and we know that he becomes king, but in no way does that look like any, any other king that's ever been crowned. Jesus, instead of being lifted up and put on a throne, he will be tried and convicted, and ultimately he's lifted up and put on a cross. And Jesus dies, and Jesus rises, and Jesus ascends, and he's king. Now, he comes riding into Jerusalem, and he heads to the heart of the city. He heads to the temple. And what he finds there is a, is a mess. And Luke's version of the, the cleansing of the temple is very, very brief. But he essentially goes in, and he, he, he turns money-changing tables over, and, and those people who, who are using the temple in order to profit off of people's beliefs and faith are kicked out so that he can begin to teach. And Jesus' last segment of his life is spent in the temple teaching. If you think about it this way, Jesus as God comes to his temple, the place where God and humanity are supposed to come together. And for the first time in human history, God is there teaching his people face to face. This is the way it's supposed to be. But there's something profoundly wrong here. Jesus points out that this is a den of robbers. It's, it, it's a place where people of violence are hiding from justice. And what does he mean by that? Um, and so uh, we're going to, uh, I want to I highlight before we move on, I want to highlight the fact that last Sunday David talked about there's this group of people called the, the, the Sanhedrin. Those were the, the elders of the, 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 the people of, of, uh, of Israel. Um, they were kind of in charge of the temple, and those were made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, and they were kind of political religious opponents. But 
they confront Jesus to attack him. They, they want to, to dismiss him. They want to uh, reject him. Um, but not everybody was like that. David dealt with those people last week. This week, we're going to look at those people that wanted to come to Jesus because they wanted to hear what he had to say. They came to Jesus because they wanted to hear from God. And they would get up early in the morning and they would go to the temple every day so that they could hear from Jesus. Um, in, in chapter 19, it says these people hung on his every word. They hung on his word. So um, we're going to start this morning back in, at the end of chapter 20, verse 45. We're going to uh, read first through verse 4 of chapter 21. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now, if you remove the chapter numbers and the verse numbers from Luke, you have the original writings there, you wouldn't see that break between the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21. There's not supposed to be a break there. Jesus has this picture in mind. He's in the temple, and he's going to confront two evils that are there. The first evil is these scribes, and they're walking around in their fine, finely dressed clothing, and they want the admiration of other people. They want to be recognized. They want to be given honor. They want to be respected. They're self-aggrandizing. They're lifting themselves up. They're essentially glorifying themselves. They go to the temple where God's supposed to be glorified, and they're glorifying themselves. This is essentially idolatry. This is a horrible evil in the eyes of God, and here these men are. Beware the scribes who are devouring widows' houses. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, like that one right there. You see all of those scribes dumping money into the offering box. They're, they're not giving out of, out of their substance. They're giving out of their abundance. And they're patting themselves on the back because they think they're so generous and they think they're, they're, they're so pious. But see that widow right there? That widow, her house is being devoured by that guy that just dropped money in the box. That widow is losing everything. See, we've been taught about the, this story the wrong way. We've, we've, we've been taught the, you know, the story of the widow's might, and it's been largely taken out of context. And we've been taught that Jesus is saying, here's this woman, and she's being very, very generous, and she's giving all that she has. Be like her. That's not the point. Jesus is saying, look at what's going on here. Look at the sin of these scribes. Look at the abuse of these people. Look at the disparaging difference between the wealthy religious elite and the poor and the powerless. This is not the way it's supposed to be. As one commentator put it, he said <clears throat> this, he laments the travesty of a religious system that has its effect the devouring of this woman's livelihood. In no way does Luke suggest that Jesus finds the widow's actions as exemplary or praiseworthy. Jesus' mission is to bring good news to the poor, including this widow, not to impoverish the poor even further. There's this system in place, this religious system in place, where the, the, the elite, self-glorifying religious leaders 
are, are there to, to bring honor to themselves while at the same time they're taking the last pennies from people like this poor widow. Um, it says in, in the text that she was, uh, she was giving uh, two lepta, the, the name of the coinage, lepta. Uh, last week, um, David talked about this, that a, a denarius was one day's wages. Well, one denarius was 132 lepta. She gave one half of a percent of a day's wage, less than half a percent of a day's wage, but that's all she had. That's all she had. She's giving it to, to the temple, and she doesn't know where her next meal is coming from. Jesus isn't looking at this and saying, you be generous like this. He, he's looking at her saying, this is not supposed to be this way. This is not what God intends. This is a vile act of injustice that's being perpetrated in the name of God, which makes it all the worse. Jesus is confronting injustice, and he's going to bring about this, this proclamation through the rest of chapter 21, this proclamation, this, this prophetic announcement of what's going to happen as a result of what people have done by profaning his temple. And so that's what we're going to look at throughout the rest of this chapter. Um, so let's dive in. 21 verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand, do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. So uh, Jesus is he's going to talk about three different um, periods of time. Uh, he's going to talk about some things that God is going to do within the lifetime of those apostles and disciples, the people that are hearing this message. Within their lifetime, some things are going to happen. Then after their lifetime, there's an indefinite period of time after that. That's a time in which we find ourselves, in which we live. And then there's the time of his second return when he comes again. And so we have to do a little bit of work to distinguish what he's saying about which particular time and what we need to learn from each one. But here he's talking about what's going to happen in their lifetime, the destruction of the temple. Um, <clears throat> approximately 35 years after Jesus said this, there was an insurrection in Jerusalem. Zealots who, uh, believing that they had found the Messiah... Um, overthrew the Sanhedrin because they were in, in cahoots with uh, Roman authorities, overthrew their religious leaders, and they kicked out all the Roman authority outside of Jerusalem. They removed Romans from Jerusalem. Rome responded by laying siege to Jerusalem. Talked about this a couple of weeks ago. For four months, Roman legions surrounded that city until the people began to starve. At the end, a fire broke out in Jerusalem and destroyed most of the city, including the temple. And the fire got so hot that all the gold in the temple turned into liquid metal and it flowed through the cracks between the rocks. So that after it was over, Roman soldiers literally took crowbars and they removed every single stone in order to get at the gold. What, what Jesus said here, no stone will be left on top of another, actually came true. He was that accurate. This happened within the disciples' lifetime. It's happened to them when... Uh, <clears throat> Now, uh, verse 10 and 11. Uh, the thing to notice there is that he, he finishes that by saying, um, when you see this happen, that's not the end. Okay, that's not the end. That's, that's just the beginning. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation 
and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. He's talking about this indefinite period of time after their time. In other words, this is the time when you and I live. So open up your, your news feed right now and you will see kingdom rise against kingdom. Russia invades Ukraine, right? Nation against nation. How many wars have been fought in the last 2,000 years? Earthquakes. Remember three weeks ago, India and Syria. I'm sorry, Turkey and Syria. 30,000 people dead in an earthquake, right? Uh, famines. Throughout most of or, or parts of Eastern Africa right now, there are famines so severe. Thousands of people are dying. Pestilence from COVID to cancer, right? Terror in the sky, right? Chinese spy balloons everywhere. But you open up your news feed and you see what Jesus is talking about. This is the reality of the world in which we live. Jesus said that it would be. Now, verse, verse 12, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So going back before that indefinite period, he's talking about what's going to happen in their life, and he's saying, you, this is going to happen to you. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be brought before trials. You're going to be condemned. Read the book of Acts. That's the second part of Luke's writings. That's the story continued. It's how the church began. And from Stephen to the arrest of John and Peter to, to, to Paul, you see this actually taking place. The synagogue leaders are, are putting them on trial, these, the, the, these apostles. And they're standing before governors like Felix. And they're standing before emperors like Nero. And they are being condemned. This happened in their life. It continues to happen in our time. Persecution. I know we don't really see it very often, but um, this last December, the U.S. State Department, it puts out um, a, 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 a list of what it calls countries of particular concern. Um, it's a list of countries that have allowed or endorsed what it calls severe violations of, uh, of religious freedom. And in this year's list, there are two new countries added, Nigeria and Cuba. In Nigeria, in, in 2022, uh, between Boko Haram and another group called the Islamic State North Africa, 4,000 Christians were murdered. Another 2,000 were kidnapped in Nigeria. Cuba has been added to the list because of its government's uh, attack on Roman Catholic clergy. Other uh, countries that, that made the list, Burma, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. Other countries that should be on the list haven't made it yet, like India. But throughout the world, people in the name of Christ are being persecuted. Like, it still happens. Why does God let that happen? Why? Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Um, it's interesting that in, in times of persecution, when um, authorities try to stamp out belief in the gospel, they end up spreading it further. That violence doesn't result in the end of our Christian faith, it results in the spread of it. 
God has allowed persecution for that reason. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't put thought and time into energy and coming up with your persecution speech. Why? Because I will give you a mouth on wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The Holy Spirit living in you will tell you what to say. Because the words that people need to hear are not human wisdom words. They must be divine wisdom words. It must come from the Spirit of God. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Remember something that David said last week. He said, a single point of agreement, a common cause or a common enemy does not mean we share the same values with someone else. Christians can work alongside people with whom they share a common cause, but we should never fall for the temptation to trust the motivations of those who don't recognize Christ as Lord. Our allegiance is to the Lord and our family consists of His followers. You see, following Jesus completely changes your lines of allegiance and your lines of kinship. It completely changes them. So you'll be delivered up even by parents and some will put you to death. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. That word perish there, Jesus isn't saying um, that you're not going to die. In fact, he just said some of you are going to die. That word perish there, it, it, it contains a much deeper and significant meaning. We, we read the same word in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That we would not perish, but have eternal life. That word perish is set over against eternal life. That just as there is a life eternal, there is a death eternal. That's what perish means. You won't die eternally is essentially what Jesus is saying. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your endurance. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those <clears throat> who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and, by, and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is prophetic pronouncement of judgment that's going to happen to Jerusalem. This isn't the first time. You flip back to the Old Testament and you see people like Jeremiah and Isaiah. They're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem as Babylon came in and sacked it and carried its people away into captivity. It's going to happen again, Jesus is saying. And it's going to happen for the same reasons. Because once again, you've turned to idolatry. Once again, instead of glorifying God, you're glorifying yourself. And once again, you're committing acts of injustice against the poor and the powerless. And so it's going to happen again. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That, that line there is he's pointing to the fact that the gospel gets to go to everybody. He's pointing to the fact that the promise made way back in Genesis that God would bless the whole world through this descendant is going to come true. That God saves not just his people, but God saves the world through Jesus. 
the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so we, uh, we look on verse 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars <clears throat> and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming to the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great authority. So there it is. That's that third phase he's talking about when he comes. But notice he says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What is he talking about there? He's talking about something far above spy balloons. Right? Um, he's talking about the same thing that Paul echoes in Ephesians 6, 12, where he says that our, 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 our struggle, our war as human beings, it's not against rulers and authorities, or I'm sorry, it's not against flesh and blood, it's against rulers and authorities, against uh, cosmic powers over this present darkness. He says, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the people that came to hear Jesus every day, people who got up early in the morning and they came to the temple to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him, why did they come to hear him? And you look at, at what we just sort of walked through here. Uh, you see a lot of doom and gloom, right? The, these prophetic announcements of, of judgment, of suffering, of martyrdom. Why would you get up early to hear that message? In a word, it's hope. You see, it all depends on where you're sitting. See, if you're in a position of power and if you're in a position of authority, if you're materially wealthy and you have the esteem of people around you and Jesus is talking about things that end all that for you, then this is bad news. However, if you're poor and powerless, if you are at the bottom, if you're the servant, if you're the slave, if, if you are at the, the, just the, the, the dredges of society and you hear that this is going to take place, this reverses everything for you. There's actually hope in this. See, the people that Jesus were talking to, they understood physical oppression from Rome, but also physical oppression from their own religious authorities. Like the, 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 the temple itself was stealing their last dimes, not just the Roman government. They understood physical oppression. And now you and I, we may not understand physical oppression the way that they do. We don't have a government like they had. We don't have a religious system like they have. But we do understand spiritual oppression. The thing that every Christian has in common with every other Christian that has ever lived is the reality of spiritual oppression. There is a, de a devil. There is our own flesh. There is a world that tells us lies and tries to, 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 to convince us to follow things that just aren't true, that, that weigh on us, that steal our time, and they steal our joy, and they oppress us. Many of you walked in here this morning, feel the weight of the reality of the world in which you live in. And you know profoundly and deeply that there's so much more to life than what you can just simply see, taste, touch, and smell. There is a spiritual reality and a spiritual oppression. Jesus is, is part of the, the, the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken, they're going to be destroyed. Because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make it all right. See, there's hope. So you look at this message and, and, and you say, like, there's a lot of doom and gloom here, but no, it depends on where you're sitting. If you know what it means to be oppressed, this is the hope. The return of Jesus. Well, verse 29, 
And they told him a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. And as soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourself and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. That word near is problematic for us because we think, we think in limited terms of time and space. The kingdom of heaven, when it fully comes, will be a physical reality. But it's also a spiritual reality. And in, and in terms of its spiritual reality, it's already here. The Pharisees asked Jesus the, a question earlier on. They asked him, when is the kingdom of God gonna, gonna, going to appear? And Jesus said, it's standing in your midst. He was referring to himself. It's here. Jesus dies and he rises and he ascends and he sends his spirit to live in you and live in me. The kingdom of God is here. We are walking temples of the kingdom of God. It's here. It's now. Yes, one day the physical and the spiritual will merge. And we long for that day. Because in the meantime, though we've been saved from the punishment of sin, and though we've been saved from the power of sin because by that power of the Holy Spirit, we have yet to be saved from the presence of sin, which will happen when His kingdom comes. Verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus here is he's referring to the power and the eternal nature of His words and whether he was speaking to those people 2,000 years ago or to us, or if he should wait to come back another 2,000 years from now, his words are still authoritative and powerful and foundational for us all. Verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake, at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What should our response be to this passage? What, what should our response be to, to the reality of spiritual persecution, to spiritual oppression? What should, what should our response be to the reality in which we walked out of here or walked into this morning? should our response be? And, and, and we find in the text there's three things. There's three takeaways that I, I want to pull out for you. And they're going to be stated, each one first in the negative and then in the positive. The first one is this. Don't be weighed down by dissipation. I had to look up the word dissipation. It, it, it means um, uh, literally uh, wastefulness. Don't be weighed down by wastefulness. And here's what Jesus is talking about here. When you understand the reality of your situation and the world in which you live, the, the spiritual enemies out there from, from your own flesh, from the world, from the devil, when you understand that situation, one of the things that you can do is get busy. You, you, can, you can try and, and try to uh, just sort of um, uh, to look at your calendar and look at your life and, and just choose to get busy. Choose to fill up your time. Choose to spend every minute. And in other words, you, you can choose to just try to ignore the reality of life and, and get busy with all sorts of wasteful activity. 
all sorts of activity that has no eternal value and no eternal significance. You can get busy. You can, you can waste your life. And here's what Jesus is saying. Don't waste your life. Instead, he says this, straighten up. Straighten up. Now, the, the Greek uh, word there, it literally it means um, to unbend. It just means unbend. There's a, a Latin phrase that I've latched onto lately because it so uh, defines what I am apart from Christ. Um, it's a word that uh, Martin Luther used in a sermon on the book of Romans. And, and the word is homo incurvatus or incurvatus and say. And, and what it literally means is man turned in on himself. This is the picture of, of, of sin, of, of our fallenness and our broken. Man turned in on himself, bent over on himself because of his, his self-centeredness, his self-worshipfulness. It's, it's just all about self. It's this picture of, of being turned in on yourself. And here's what Jesus is saying. Don't waste your life. Instead, straighten up. Unbend yourself. Stop bending in on yourself and start bending towards Him. Don't be weighed down. Straighten up. Second, don't medicate your spiritual oppression. Don't turn to things to numb yourself from the reality of the world in which you live. Jesus specifically uses the word drunkenness. But we know there's a lot more ways to numb ourselves than just that. And whether that's scrolling through Facebook or that's binge-watching TV shows, whatever it is, it's ways that we intentionally, we turn to these things in order to numb ourselves from the reality of life. So don't numb yourself. Don't medicate. Instead, raise your heads. That's what, what Jesus uses here. Raise your heads. Um, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they were, they were two Protestant clergymen in 1555, uh, they, were, they were burnt at the stake for their beliefs. And Hugh Latimer turned to his friend and he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. He said that as they were lighting the flames beneath his feet. He says to his friend, play the man. Play the godly man. Look up. Look past our circumstances. In spite of the fact that we're about to die a painful death, play the man. Look up and look past this. Instead of numbing yourself to what's going on in your reality, recognize what's going on in your reality, but look past and beyond it to what God is doing. Thirdly, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Uh, the night before Jesus was killed, he took his disciples up that, that Mount Olivet, that, that, that garden that was there. And he begins to, to, to tell them what he's going to face, or he doesn't tell them what he's going to face. He knows what he's going to face, but he tells them to stay alert, to stay awake, to be watchful, to pray with him. And of course, they fall asleep. But stay awake. I think the way that Christians do this most often is we come to Jesus we, we take the redemption he offers. We, we take it like it's a ticket to heaven or ticket to that kingdom that we get to, to use after we die. But in the meantime, we go back to living life the way that we want to live it. And so we have no purpose. We, we practically fall asleep 
without embracing the purpose that he's given us, whether that's the great commission or it's the great commandment, we don't fall, we just fall asleep. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. You see, the reality is, is as we as Christians, we, we have three different choices when it comes to how we respond to the reality of our situation. The first thing we could do is we could retaliate and be violent. Retaliation and violence could be one way that we respond. Um, we see that in history. We see that in those zealots who around 70 AD tried to kick Rome out of Jerusalem. And we see that it didn't work. For us, if we were going to pick up arms and fight back, who would we fight against? And you, you might think, well, well, we might fight against the government or we might fight against the school system or we might you know, fight against the YMCA or we might you know, fight against whatever. But in the end, we're not actually hurting the enemy because the enemy's not hurt with bombs or bullets or swords. People who are pawns of the enemy would get hurt. So retaliation's not the way. We could respond with fear and anxiety. We could be fearful about what we face on a day-to-day -day basis, and we could hide from the world. We could withdraw. Jesus says over and over again, don't be afraid. The third option is the one that he points us to, confidence and endurance. Confidence and endurance. And the way that we are confident and endurant is we cling to him. This morning... Uh, I want to answer the question, how do we do this? How do we not get weighed down and straighten up? How do we um, not medicate our spiritual oppression instead look up? How do we not fall asleep instead stay awake? And, and the how really comes down to what we'll do in communion today. So if you have uh, the, the elements in front of you, you could begin to pass them. We're going to talk about the how as we partake of communion today. But before we get there, I want to remind you about the song we sang just before I, I got up here this morning, Blessed Assurance. It's an old hymn. And if you know a few details about the one who wrote the lyrics, it helps you understand the song a whole lot better. It was uh, written by a woman named Fanny Crosby. And a couple of weeks after Fanny was born, she got an eye infection that went untreated and she was went blind as an infant. And, uh, and so she, she was blind the, her whole life, pretty much, except for the first few weeks of it. However, at the age of nine, she wrote a poem that went like this. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot, and I won't. The age of nine, she, she had this confidence, and she lived this life of endurance, and later in life, she wrote the lyrics to this song that we just sang, Blessed Assurance. And I, I want you to understand something. These words were written by a blind woman. Visions of rapture now burst in my sight. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Those are words written by a blind person. What was she seeing? 
How is it that she was able to live with confidence and endurance and was able to see what so many of us don't see every day? The hymn begins with this, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I want you to think about that. The symbols that you hold in your hand, that little piece of bread is a symbol of, of Christ who gave his body for you and for me. He gave himself to us. And that little cup of juice, it, it symbolizes his blood poured out for us. Blood which purchased this new covenant relationship we get to have with God. Jesus is mine. You ask that question, how do I not waste my life? Instead, bend towards God. How do I not numb myself to the reality of the world instead raise my head how do I stay awake instead of falling asleep the how comes from one simple source it comes from him he dies he rises he ascends but he sends his spirit to live in us see so often in life when I'm faced with the reality of how things are what I tend to do is get busy to fill my calendar, to try to control, to try to manipulate, to try to make things happen. When all the time the Spirit of God is, is living in me saying, let me do this. Let me handle this. Trust me. Look beyond this situation. Oftentimes when I face the reality of, of life, I try to numb it away. I turn to something that will distract me from it. And whether that's Facebook or whether it's binge watching or whatever it is, I look to something else so that I could take my eyes off reality when all the time the Holy Spirit is saying, you don't have to take your eyes off reality. You just got to look at reality with me. Oftentimes, I want to fall asleep, literally. When things are difficult for me, one of the ways that I cope is I want to take a nap. I literally want to fall asleep rather than deal with the reality of life. And yet this, the Holy Spirit lives in me, gives me the power to face it. See, you have the power of the Spirit living in you. Why? Because Jesus is yours. Jesus is mine. He's placed himself in our hands. And when we partake communion, we are proclaiming that one simple fact. Jesus is mine. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in me. And that should change how I face reality. When you're ready, you may partake of those elements on your own. I'm going to pray. And the worship team is going to come back up. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you once again. Thank you for your love and for your sacrifice. Thank you that you made a way. Lord Jesus, thank you for the message that's hard. Thank you for waking us up to the reality of the way things actually are. Thank you for not lying to us. Thank you for not 
trying to convince us that everything's going to be just happy and, and sunny all the time. But thank you for giving us a bigger hope beyond what we see. Help us to see like Fanny. In Jesus' name, amen.